at stand. So we're just making do as we roll along here. But hopefully you're just listening to the words here and not focusing on my face because I think that could be a little disconcerting. Anywho, enough of that. We're into Matthew 14 this morning as we continue our journey through this amazing book, Matthew in a Month, a little companion gospel study to First Peter and that we're studying on Sunday mornings. And as we're, as we're going to see, Peter plays a prominent, prominent role in Matthew's gospel, particularly, particularly in this passage this morning and really from every passage here on almost. So let me pray for us and we're going to, to dive in. Lord, um, we're coming to you this morning in the same posture um, that we begin every day, and that's one of need. Or by our families alone, or by our kids alone, or relationships, or neighbors, or hobbies. We don't live, or money, we don't live by any of those things alone. Um, we live by every word which proceeds from your mouth. And we just want to acknowledge that and come in a posture of dependence and seeking after you this morning. So Lord, we commit this time to you. Pray that you would use it. You would raise up a harvest of righteousness through it. In your name we pray. Amen. Going back to almost two weeks ago when we were in Matthew chapter 1, one of the things that we talked about that Matthew has as an underlying driving purpose to his gospel is to show unequivocally that Jesus is God's anointed. He is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that he, in fact, is the king. And one of the ways that, that he emphasizes this is that Matthew is taking us back in a way all the way to Deuteronomy when Moses, remember, made a prophecy and said, the Lord is going to raise up from your midst someone to take my place, who is greater than me, the greatest prophet. And Moses and Matthew is attempting to show that, in fact, this is Jesus. This He is the new Moses. And Jesus' life and ministry parallel, in, a, in an amazing degree, uh, different aspects of the life and ministry of Moses. Remember how Jesus escaped to Egypt, was called out of Egypt um, to come back to the promised land, just like Moses was. Jesus was led into the wilderness, remember, to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, just as Moses and the people of Israel were led into the wilderness to be tested for 40 years. Um, that Jesus coming out of the wilderness gathered up the people and coming down from the mountain began to teach them the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And again, all these are Matthew's ways of emphasizing to us that Jesus is that fulfillment of Moses. He is the greater Moses. And he picks up on that motif here um, in a pretty powerful way um, in Matthew 14 because we see two miracles and they're probably uh, other than the the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John these are probably two of or if not the two best known miracles in all of Jesus's ministry and the first we find in verses 13 through 21 it's probably you're probably fairly familiar with it. You learned about it in Sunday school, uh, the felt board, the terrible clip art um, in your Sunday school curriculum, but but where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now here it talks about Jesus with verse 13 withdrawing from that place. Um, he um, saw this great crowd. 
had compassion on them. It was getting late in the evening. There was no place for them to get food. The disciples were like, what up, Jesus? We need, um, we need some food to feed the people. Let's dismiss them, send them away. And Jesus said, no, I have that covered. Give me your five loaves and two fishes. And um, essentially from that multiplied that miraculously into enough to feed um, 5,000 men plus women and children. This could be a, have been a crowd of seven, eight, 10,000. We're not sure. And what is, what, is Mos, what is Matthew drawing our attention to here? Well, the whole goal here was not to provide the people something to eat. Okay, what, what, what was the goal? The goal was to provide them a sign. It was to show them that just as Moses was called into the wilderness with the people of Israel, they were hungry, they needed physical food, God gave them what? Manna from heaven. And here, Jesus has called them out into this desolate region. They're hungry. Jesus has provided food for 5,000. Now, again, all of this is meant, the signs are not meant to be signs in and of themselves. They are meant to point to the reality of Jesus and his divinity, Jesus and his majesty, and he is being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, we know that ultimately this was a demarcation point in the life and ministry of Jesus. So going back a couple years ago when we studied um, this passage in John's gospel, we know that this was the point in time where people, that Jesus' popularity was at its height. And Jesus um, fed them. The people said, this man is surely the Messiah. And what did they try to do? They tried to make him king. They tried to... Um, uh, come and by force uh, make him like this physical king that would that would lead Israel to victory over the Romans. And remember that that is when Jesus escaped or, or withdrew from them, went to the synagogue in Capernaum and gave his very famous bread of life discourse, right? In other words, you've eaten physical bread and you want me as a physical king, but I'm giving you physical bread to show you your need for spiritual bread. For your spiritual kingship. So, so blessed is the man who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. And remember, this was when many, many, many of his disciples or people, and by disciples we mean not the twelve, but others in his in his in his community de de departed, deserted, because this was a hard teaching. Um, Jesus was asking them to submit their lives and the trust in him and not simply ride his coattails to victory over the Romans. But really the essence of what we're seeing here of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is that he is the new Moses, that he is Lord um, over the elements. He is, he's in control and the sovereign over creation um, and God's creation. And, and, and that people were to come and to trust in him, not for the miracles that he could do for them, but for the life he offered them through his person as God's anointed. Now here, look at verse 22. We see the second miracle. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So what, what Matthew's not telling us there, where John fills this in, this is the point where they're trying to make him king. Jesus withdraws away from them. And he sends them to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so they're making that journey by boat, 
and apparently Jesus is going to be by himself to pray, and he's going to meet them, walk around the lake to the other side, and to meet them on foot. Well, they are out at sea, it tells us. Um, there was the wind was against them, it said. There was they were having a hard time. They other gospels tell us this was more like a storm. And it says in the middle of the night, Jesus comes walking out to them on the sea. And again, very famous passage. And, and here we see Peter. And, and Peter sees Jesus and wants to come out to Jesus. He knows that, I mean, this is an amazing miracle. It's an amazing thing. Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the night across the Sea of Galilee. They're terrified, but they recognize this is an amazing thing. And, and Jesus says, yes, Peter, come to me. And, and again, Peter walks out. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He's, he's scared. He's fearful. He begins to sink. And then Jesus helps him um, and says, look at verse 31. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Um, and so, so you may have heard many sermons on this about fixing our eyes on Jesus and the storms of life. And that all that is, is right on. Um, but we're not going to preach that sermon this morning. I want you to note what's happening in verse 32, okay? The significance of what's happening. Because when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, what's the significance of that? What amazed the disciples here? was not simply that Jesus walked on water. I mean, after all, they had seen comparable things, right? They had seen him feed 5,000. They'd seen him raise people from the dead. They'd seen him heal sickness. Certainly, they shouldn't have been shocked that Jesus could walk on water. But it was something else in the story that caused them to worship him and to proclaim, truly, you are the Son of God. And what was it? It says, verse 32, when the wind ceased. Now, what's particularly significant about that, I think, is that, that Jesus was showing them that he had a command over everything. Even the winds obeyed his voice. Even the seas obeyed his voice. I can't help but think they would be thinking back to Moses, right? And what did Moses do? Uh, miraculously on the water. Well, of course, by God's power, he parted the Red Sea. He um, comes to this, he throws his staff down, the, the waves part, the, the people cross over, the Egyptians come behind them, and you know the song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, all right, let my people go, right? And then God brought the Red Sea crashing down upon them, and it was an amazing testimony to the power of God through his prophet Moses. And here, the light sort of comes on for the disciples, right? This is not merely a Messiah. This is not merely, merely an anointed one. This is not merely an amazing prophet. Um, even the winds obey his voice. Um, he has command over the natural world in a way that even Moses did not, um, as demonstrated by walking on the water, etc. And what do they say? Truly, you are the Son of God. And again, Matthew is wanting all of us, um, the reader, to look at these things and to acknowledge and to make that same profession. Who are you, Jesus? Truly, you are the Son of God. 
you are the new Moses. You are the fulfillment, the prophet of the prophecies. And because of that, we can acknowledge you as our king and we can bend our knee to you. And so those, are, those two miracles, I think, are meant to parallel things happening in the Old Testament. The people would have understood this. The disciples certainly would have understood this. And thus they proclaim, truly, you are the son of God. It's a reminder, isn't it not, Four Oaks, that when we come to study God's word, a true study of God's word, a true knowledge of who God is, is one that will always lead us to a place of submission, will always lead us to a place of bowing the knee before our king, of acknowledging his lordship. The Bible is not merely to be studied for its cool facts, for its neat stories, um, for to show us um, cool things that God does, um, or historical um, um, pieces of antiquity and how it fits into the scope of human history and all that's true but it's mainly okay or fundamentally primarily meant to show us who Jesus is and then our right response to him and let me mention one more thing from this passage and this is just kind of a little one-off to the side here one of the things that that even as a king and sovereign and Lord and we think man Jesus is amazing still still Jesus's humanity is all over this passage. Jesus continually shows us that not only is he Lord over the universe and the earth, but he is our personal Lord and Savior. So just look at verse 13 for a second. Um, it says that right before this, John the Baptist had died. In verse 13, now when he had heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He wanted to reflect. He wanted to mourn. He wanted to lament. He wanted to pray. Um, look again at, at verse 13. Go, going on back, it says that, or, or 14, it says that he had compassion on the people. So in other words, his heart was, was moved by people's individual stories, individual lives. We see again in verse 23, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And then he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And so again, in the midst of like all these amazing miracles where the divinity of Jesus is being highlighted, Matthew is just reminding us Jesus was a man. That's not all he was, but he certainly was not less than that, just like us, with the same emotions, the same movements of the heart, the same physical needs, and ultimately the same spiritual need of coming to his father. And this is why the writers of Hebrews can, Hebrew can, Hebrews can say, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. He's been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin. And so today, Four Oaks, come to Jesus, the sovereign Lord, creator of the universe, our king, but also our fellow brother, our friend, the one who has compassion on us and loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we could spend hours and hours and hours in this one text alone and never plumb all of its depths. The Lord, remind us today that you are the sovereign and that we walk before you and that you've called us to be holy as you were holy. And even in our midst of struggling with that call, you are a personal savior who helps us out of the water just like Peter, who prays for us, who walks alongside of us, who has compassion for us. And so, Lord, keep that first and foremost in our minds today. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Thanks for joining us. Great time this morning.